Welcome back to the Karen Conti Show. This is the point in time where I take your legal questions here. You call in 312-981-7200, and uh, we'll get you on the air, give you a little triage here and figure out what your question is. And uh, you'll be on the air with me, and I'll see if I can steer you in the right direction. Again, I don't practice law in every single area, so I'm not going to know your answer. I'm not giving specific legal advice here, but I'm going to just try to maybe help you out and maybe help out some other listeners uh, in the process. So here we go. Loretta. Hi, Loretta. Welcome to WGN. How are you today? Very well, thank you. So you have a question about a will. Yes. Yes. What's your question? I have made a simple will, two paragraphs. The third paragraph I have for witnesses to sign. And in the state of Illinois, I had seen some time ago two witnesses. So I would put their name, their town, and Illinois. But do I also need to put in their street address, like Dine with Randolph? Okay, did you have and a lawyer? And I have a space for the notary public. Okay, did you, did you have a lawyer draft this? Are you taking it on a, a form from online? I drafted it myself from a previous will. Okay. And so so the answer is the street address. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know the answer to that at all. I do know that it does not have to be notarized by those witnesses. You need two credible witnesses, meaning people who actually saw you sign this. So they have to stand there and watch you sign it. They have to be in their right mind. You don't want somebody who's, you know, a minor or somebody who doesn't know know what's up and down. Uh, but you, you know, it's probably best to put their their uh, address there, just in the case, just in just to be safe. But you don't need that notary. Okay. And if it's Loretta, I don't know what your assets are. I'm not going to ask you that question. But if there's anything significant, you might want to get a lawyer to do it. I tell people, really, um, it's such an important thing to make sure this is done correctly. And especially if you have numerous uh, heirs that are involved and you have people who might be squabbling over your assets. And if you have anything of significance, you might want to have a lawyer look it over, even if it's just to look it over to say you did a good job, Loretta, um, and it's, it's good to go. Okay, I hope that helps you, okay? Well, I can say I have none of the above. Okay. And originally, I did have my husband's will and mine drafted by a lawyer, but my husband died, and the lawyer retired. And so that's why it's so simple, and I just want to go through the motion. Okay, I understand. I understand. I respect that. Loretta, good luck to you, and you take care of yourself, okay? Thank you okay. very much for your answer, and good luck to you also. Okay, bye-bye. You know, I have uh, Elizabeth Cavaney, Cavaney here. Um, she's sticking around just because she doesn't have anywhere to go, apparently. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, she, we have a question about a mal- malpractice case. Joe is on the line, and I'm going to have Elizabeth weigh in here. Joe, hi, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? So you're going to ask a question about malpractice. Okay. Uh, give, let me give you a little uh, foreground. My wife doctored with a primary physician for about 25 years. She had high blood pressure. She was a diabetic. That blood pressure wasn't being controlled. She got concerned and contacted a friend of hers who works at one of the Chicago University medical centers. 
you got her in to see two specialists, one a diabetic specialist, the other one an endocrinologist in uh, high blood pressure. The high blood pressure guy said that the kidney problem was caused by the physician she was going to, his failure to control the blood pressure. He just kept throwing drugs at her. The guy looked at the list of drugs and went through it and threw about five of them out, changed a couple, and within 14 days she had a normal blood pressure. But the fatal damage to her kidneys had already been done. The okay, Joe, let me let me just interrupt you for a minute because I want to I I just want to keep this as quick as we can. I think we get the gist of it. That failure to control her high blood pressure resulted in kidney damage. What would be the questions you would want to ask then, Elizabeth? So I think um, for a medical malpractice case, one of the first things that we ask is whether there's a permanent injury. And um, lots of times kidney damage is reversible. If she's not on dialysis, if she's not in kidney failure, if she doesn't need a kidney transplant, then chances are it hasn't risen to the level of a medical malpractice case. Um, Fortunately, she did get the proper treatment finally. Joe, is there permanent damage to your wife, to your knowledge? If you could just, because I got to get to... She has end-stage kidney disease. It is fatal. Okay. And how old how old is she, is your wife? She is on dialysis 4 days a week. Okay. So, um, why don't we uh, why don't um, you give us a call? Uh, you can either call me or call Elizabeth and uh, maybe she will talk to you a little bit more in detail about this and maybe it will rise to the level of a malpractice case. Do you have our contact information? Uh, I if you give me a phone number, I can I'll do that. I just pulled over so I could write it down. Um, Andrew, could you put this gentleman on hold and give him my phone number, and then I'll re- I'll refer him to uh, Elizabeth. In fact, an email address is probably even better because then I can just refer it to her. Thank you, thank you, and good luck. And I'm so sorry about your about your wife. Um, let's go to. I think this is Lashenko. Nicole, hi, or is this Nick? Hi, Nick. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a question. It's not maybe exactly what uh, she'd be answering you there, because it's about uh, one case I was familiar with where uh, a guy was arrested for something, end up signing a confession for it that he did not commit the crime, uh, which is murder. This is a long, long time ago. It was on the news. I don't know anything personally about it, except what was in the news. But the cops had one that was like a shop lettuce. It's like you put a bulb in this thing with a metal collar around it so it shines light at night into where you want to work, but it doesn't shine back into your eyes, you see. And for 18 hours, and so what recourse does a person have when they're found guilty about something or are made made to sign a uh, confession and it was proven later is not guilty? What is the recourse? I'm all for the police. I'm all for qualified immunity, but I'm concerned about somebody's immunities. I understand that prosecutors and judges have absolute immunity. In other words, even if they know something's probably not right, they cannot be, unless they outrightly admit it, but they cannot be held uh, responsible. What, what is the liability against these people to discourage them from doing things? Because like, I, I wouldn't want something like that happening to me. You never know. It could yeah. happen to any of us for some reason. Okay, Nick, uh, I'm going to put you on hold. And Elizabeth, you, you do some police um, misconduct cases. And these cases are not super easy because police have a lot of leeway in what, what they do and how they do their job. But Elizabeth, you want to weigh in on when 
does the line get crossed for police to be civilly responsible if someone goes to prison for something they didn't do because of their misconduct in the process? Yeah, well, um, it's a willful and wanton standard. So it's not negligence. It's a higher standard that you have to prove. Willful and wanton means that you did it with utter disregard or reckless um, disregard for the safety of another person. So um, it's a higher standard, but there are ways to file civil lawsuits against police officers for misconduct after you obtain a non-guilty verdict. One of the biggest issues is timing and whether you're within the time limit to go ahead and file a civil lawsuit uh, against the police department. So I would urge urge anyone um, to contact an attorney right away. And I think, you know, what your, your point is, you know, how do you prevent police from, from acting, you know, in ways that are violative of rights? And, you know, I think that what you see is when police are being prosecuted now, you know, and when you see these civil liability judgments and you see these decrees that come out, uh, I, I just I think that I, I think and I hope we're going to see better police conduct um, as a result of these. Again, like I think some some of it has backfired. and I think police maybe are afraid to do their jobs in some regards because of this. But there's pretty clear rules about not coercing uh, defendants to confess because what happens is you get someone to confess and the trial is going to happen and maybe you get a conviction, but it could be overturned like the one I talked about earlier in the show. And then maybe you have the wrong person in jail. So um, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's, Keep this going. We've got another couple of uh, really good questions here. I've got a texture who says, what do you call a med student who graduates with a C minus average? Doctor. Doctor. <laughs> Actually, Elizabeth and I just told that joke off off, off uh, microphone. Thank you for that little uh, tidbit there. Uh, is there any legal way to protect someone's 401k earnings from a spouse in a divorce? Uh, that's a really good question because most people think if you have a 401k in your name during a divorce, you will get that 401k. But the answer is no. Whatever you contribute to your 401k while you are married is usually half of your spouse's. So you will have to divide it with your spouse. The only way to keep those 401k earnings from the spouse in a divorce is to have a prenuptial agreement, which is an agreement before you get married that says that, hey, what, you keep your 401k, I keep my 401k, and then you're going to put all kinds of other little things in there that you want to protect your assets, especially if you have significant assets. And then you could also do a postnuptial agreement, which is an agreement after uh, you get married, which would have the same thing. Uh, give us a call here, 312-981-7200. We're here with Elizabeth Caveney on The Karen Conti Show. I'm taking your legal questions, and I have an associate and an assistant here, Elizabeth Caveney, who's weighing in on the things she knows about. Between us, we're going to answer your questions or at least steer you in the right direction. Let us go to Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the show. You have a question about Social Security disability. Yes. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, yeah, thank you. I retired from my job um, in June 30th of 2022, so about six, eight months now, and I turned 63 into February of this year. Um, I've, I've retired because I have I had a very physically demanding job, and I've had health issues, back issues, etc. Now, I've contacted Social Security, and I know that in my particular case, based on the fact that I was born in 1960, in order to get full benefits, I would have to retire at 67 years of age. I can retire, I mean, I Get, I can get benefits at 62 at a reduced rate. Um, 
Um, and then also as far as Medicare, I don't get that till 65. Now, um, how difficult would it be for me to try to apply for? And I do have a lot of, I'm still going, I'm getting shots in my back this Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. So I've got these um, ongoing health issues. How difficult would it be to get the disability, which in my case would just get me the full um, benefits of my retirement, um, nothing extra, but also my Medicare early. And um, do I need to go to a special lawyer for that? You know, they advertise all the time on television. You said earlier in the show not to go to these, you know, fly-by-night lawyers. So I need advice in that department. Can you help me? Yes. Um, There's a couple people I would refer you to because I'm not going to know the answer. Number one, this is not my practice area, but I also don't know your exact disability. And even if I knew it, I probably couldn't give you the right advice. You might need two people on this. You might need an elder law attorney who can tell you whether or not, like, what's the best way to apply for this? The fact that you resigned or retired might be, uh, not, you know, it might not help you in getting your disability. But if you prove that you have a condition that that uh, makes you not be able to do your job and that there are no jobs that you can do given your medical conditions, then maybe you are entitled to that. So I think maybe getting somebody to talk to you about how to apply and what strategies to use. But a lot of the lawyers who do disability do it if you don't, if you get denied. They tell you to apply and then when you get denied, they will file the appeal for you and that's how, how they litigate it. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask you to send me an email and I will refer you to at least two elder law attorneys who have been on the show who are really good at, at this and maybe can steer you in the right direction by just an email. And then uh, I will send you a couple of disability lawyers who I work with as well. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, Andrew, why don't you uh, tell her what our email address is? It's WGN at AskKarenConti.com. That's WGN at AskKaren, K-A-R-E-N. C-O-N-T-I L-A-W dot com Is uh, Cheryl on or is Cheryl not on? Okay, let's go to Jack. I want to talk to Jack about intentional infliction of emotional distress. What's your question, Jack? Hi, um, I have been uh, looking for an attorney to help with the case um, and and, um, every time I go online and I put in uh, searching through uh, Cook County area um, it always comes up with personal injury lawyers, and the attorneys that I have spoken to have asked, "Well, is there any physical uh, uh, injury?" And I said, "Well, no. It's that's why I'm talking about emotional." And um, and so it seems like I'm, I'm having trouble narrowing down the search or, or honing the search to find what I'm looking for. Am I missing something, Jack? Uh, let me just ask you something. If you, if you don't want to answer sure. it online on uh, on the air, that's fine. But can you tell us what exactly who you like, what kind of person you want to sue, and what they did that caused you emotional distress, or is that something too personal? Um, it's a little personal, but it, it involves. Um, my, I've asked them not to do something specifically with with my family, and they went ahead and did it a couple times over, knowing full well that, and they did it without telling me or involving me, even though I asked them not to do it because I wanted to be involved, and uh, and so and okay. they've done it over and over again. Okay, so Jack, I'm going to let Elizabeth weigh in on this, but I I think my way in on it is that this is a very difficult case that it, that if it doesn't have physical harm to you or something that's so ex- just extremely outrageous, like burying a, a live person or something that's so extreme that that this is this lawsuit is probably not something that a lawyer is going to take on a contingency. 
I think that's probably right, Karen. I think um, intentional, the reason you keep hitting personal injury attorneys is because intentional infliction of emotional distress is usually one of the components, like along with an assault or a battery. Um, I think it's something that we're going to see more and more of with social media, and it's going to become a developing area of law, but I don't think it's there yet, and I think it's you're going to have a hard time trying to find an attorney that's going to be able to take that case on a contingent basis. And, you know, the other thing, just so you understand, and, and you, you feel that you were wronged, and I understand that, and I assume that you are really distressed about this enough to pursue it, but from a lawyer's standpoint, a lawyer takes on a case and spends two years and, and thousands of dollars with experts and depositions and filings, and if there's no tangible loss, meaning something that you can put a number on, it's a really hard case to get a lawyer to take because you, you may not be able to prove it and there, there's no concrete dollar amount. So that's probably why you're going to have trouble, Jack. That's probably why, and it's a good observation that, you know, maybe there are going to be new laws about emotional distress generated by postings that are false or bullying online and these types of things, but we're not quite there yet. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for the call. I appreciate it. And good luck to you. Um, Let's talk about, let's talk to Ruth. Welcome to WGN. Ruth, how are you? Good, Karen. How are you? Good. What's your legal question? Okay, my legal question is that I had my sister as my legal power of attorney for the last 10 years, but she became ill. And so I was I went to the bank to change the power of attorney um, to my son, uh, who was with me, uh, and is also the beneficiary of this, um, you know, my money. Um, And they told me I couldn't do it unless I got a lawyer. That <clears throat> that's the only person that could change my power of attorney. I just want to know if that's true or not true. That is not true. Uh, you don't. You don't need a lawyer. You. I assume you have the power of attorney form that you printed from online. I did. Okay. I do. And and uh, I don't know as I sit here because this is not again my practice area. But there, I think there's a box to say that you are revoking all prior powers of attorney. I'm pretty sure that you there, there's part of that on the power of attorney. If not, no, you just need to do a new power of attorney, and um, there, there's no need to get a lawyer to do it. Actually, if you want to um, send me an email with the details of it, um, let me refer you to someone who could maybe just quickly answer your question for you. Because I don't know what the... Right. I, maybe there's something here that I don't know, because that's a strange bit of advice that you're getting from someone who probably should know the answer to that. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, and I'll give out my email address, wgn at askkarenconti.com. That doesn't sound right. sounds like there's something missing there. Um, I'm going to go to the text line before we take a break. Um, There is a texter who said that she uh, has four siblings. My parents, I'm sorry, my parents had a will and there were three kids. And after the passing of both parents, I've received nothing. I have no money to sue an executor for my share. I've not found an attorney willing to take the case. Uh, It's been four years since the parents have passed. So this happens all the time. I, I see this a lot. And there could be a number of reasons for this. First, it could be that it does process is taking a long time. If the case 
if this matter went through probate, which means the court system had to probate the will, there are proceedings, things take time, COVID got in the way of things getting done promptly in all courts, and this would encompass some of the years that uh, we had COVID issues in the courts. Um, It could be that the executor took the money and stole it. I don't know. I, I, I hope not. I hope that's not the case. But it's very difficult to get that information. Although, if it was probated, you should go to the county where your parents lived and look online. Uh, there is a way to look up a, a probate case, state planning probate case, and you put your parents' names in there and see what you can find online. When was it filed? Who the judge is? It will tell you when the next court date is, and maybe you take a trip over to the Daily Center if it's in Cook County and uh, see what's going on and and see if what you can glean from the filings online. So that's my best bit of advice for you. And you're right, the next step is to hire a lawyer, but it does cost money to hire a lawyer. And uh, if you can't afford it, um, you're, you're out of luck on that regard. So but good luck to you on that. We have about 15 minutes left. So give us a call. We can get in lots of questions in 15 minutes. 312 981-7200. We'll take a break and we'll be back in a minute. Here with Elizabeth Caveney. She's been here a long time. You're having fun on the radio, aren't you? Isn't it fun? I am. It's very fun. It's fun being with you. It's, you know, it's like a whole different uh, set of skills in a way. I mean, similar skills in in that you're explaining things. And we were just talking about how you're from Pittsburgh. I'm from Berwyn. And um, when you speak to a jury, you got to just make things simple not that you're talking down to people but that you when you start using terminology that only lawyers understand you lose people right right and i'm sure like your cases are super complicated when it comes to medical terminology i mean you've got to explain that to jurors right yeah yeah lots of times we rely on the doctors to do that and as a result i use a lot of academic experts medical experts because they're used to teaching Ah, they're used to working with medical students and residents and fellows and kind of taking them from the medical student stage all the way through. And that's what I need them to do with the jury. I need to take them from the very beginning and the learning stage all the way through, albeit much faster than medical school and medical training. We, you know, I hear once in a while it pops up this idea that we should have professional juries because jurors can understand certain medical terms or if you're talking about a very complicated patent case, for instance, and there's engineering issues involved, that no juror could possibly uh, understand these things and we need professional jurors. I mean, I take it that you would say that that's a bad idea. That's a terrible idea. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) That's a terrible idea. I, I just think people you can you can you can explain anything, can't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean it, that's our job as lawyers, and you know uh, you're entitled to a jury by um, your peers, uh, um, a trial by your peers, and to have professionals deciding it all the time, um, they be, would become so immunized against hearing the stories and the cases and. Um, I, I, for so many reasons that wow it's just it's a terrible idea right you can explain anything anybody can understand and it's your job to make sure that everybody on the jury does understand no matter what their background their education their primary language anything you need to take it to everyone's level and make sure that everyone is understanding and along those lines it's important to make your client understand. And I get so many calls, Elizabeth, from people who say, can you explain this? I'm going through a divorce and my lawyer doesn't explain anything to me. And I say, why can't you just ask him or her? Just say, like, can you explain what that means? What is that discovery? I don't know what that means. 
exp- have your lawyer explain it to you. And, and you know, I think, I think I, it's sad when I hear that because yeah. why are you calling me? I mean, I'm happy, happy, happy to help you. And I offer to help people. But I just think of all the money people pay for attorney's fees and for the expertise of, of some fine lawyers. Why aren't you having them explain? And if you have to explain it two or three times, that's part of your job. It kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier about being afraid to ask doctors questions and having such a deferential relationship that you don't feel comfortable enough to question them. It's like you're questioning their ability if you ask them even the simplest question. But hey, you've got to be an advocate for yourself in all aspects of life. So ask the questions. Knowledge is power. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have a texter from 630 who says, Karen, can your own lawyer lie to you? No. We have a part of our ethical code that says we're not supposed to lie. And um, it's it's a sad day when lawyers do that. Um, But no, the answer is that lawyers cannot lie to you. Well, let's watch. Which one am I going to? Five? Okay, let's go to Marla. Hi, Marla. Welcome to WGN. Thank you so much for holding. Uh, tell me oh what your gosh, legal issue. My pleasure. Sure. Thank you. This is this is um my my three brothers and I inherited a condo. I had it ready for sale by owner, and I found a buyer, and I went to a lawyer, and we drew up the papers. And one day before the close, a pipe burst on the floors above it and flooded everything. Mm. My buyer went backed out, and that was. According to my lawyer, that was okay because I didn't have it in the condition that he had agreed to purchase it in. So now it's been going to be four months before I can put it on the market again because it needs all new carpet, all new paint, and it's they're doing a wonderful job. The um, the HOA, the Condo People Association, their insurance is doing everything. But in the meantime, I've incurred all these expenses. I have the legal fees that didn't go through. I have three months of HOA or four months of HOA and four months of taxes. Is there any way I can recover that? That's interesting. So the HOA, the Homeowners Association, is paying for the damage, I assume, because the pipe was in some sort of common area that wasn't in your unit? They called it, no, it was in two units above me. It was, they called it structural, and they called the damage structural. They aren't paying for things like, luckily, my condo was empty. <laughs> but, I, I mean, they're not paying for furniture. That would have been my, my own insurance and curtains and things like that. But because it was empty, the only thing I really lost was the carpet and the paint. And then they did a bunch of restoration and mold mitigation. So that's this is an interesting question. Does this kind of homeowners uh, association insurance cover damages that are not just related to the physical structure of your unit, but attendant damages, meaning, like you said, the loss of the sale, the attorney's fees, the delay that requires you to pay more um, assessments, etc. How much do you mm-hmm. think you've lost in that regard? It's set aside the, the property damage, but what you're talking about for legal fees, etc.? Probably it would be $7,000. Okay. You know, it, it would be worth maybe spending a little bit of money for to ask an attorney who specializes in insurance law that question. Uh, I have a guy who does all, all he does is insurance related issues. And maybe Great. he can quickly give you an answer. He might have to pay for it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not offering his uh, services for free. Uh, but he might be able to just steer you to a website or a link or something that will tell you the answer to the question because it's a good one and I don't know the answer. Okay. Okay. And so I'm going to put you on hold and I'm going to give out my email address. It's WGN 
at askkarenconti.com. Uh, let's see. We have time for some more. Let's go to Sandy. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Sandy. Oh, Welcome hi to there. WGN. Yeah. Thank you for Excuse holding. Me, thank you for Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a, a legal issue as far as um, I had had an injury and attorneys were involved and there was uh, camera footage of everything showing uh, responsibility for the um, party, that the area that I had uh, had the incident in. And um, the attorney assured me everything was fine, everything was good. It went on for quite a while. Um, we got down to Lyle before trial even and um oops sandy sandy's off uh-oh uh-oh so our lines are going a little crazy here so i think she was getting to the point of maybe she lost her case and when is it malpractice but um you know let's i mean i guess i think that was where she was going given the, what was what my producer wrote elizabeth what do you i mean when does something when does something amount to attorney malpractice? It's not as easy, just losing your case is not going to get you a lawsuit against your lawyer. No. Um, the test is um, what a reasonably, did the attorney do something that a reasonably qualified, a reasonably careful attorney wouldn't do? Or the opposite, did they fail to do something that a reasonably careful attorney would have done on your behalf? And that's the question. So you need to prove that, which is the legal malpractice, and you need to prove the underlying case. And there are attorneys that specialize in just that, in legal malpractice cases. And so, you know, I think what you see a lot is where, see, clients will say, my lawyer wasn't really good in court, or my my lawyer didn't particularly call a client or ask them certain questions usually has to amount to something very significant like for instance if a lawyer blows a statute of limitations and you have no case right yeah, i mean that's pretty clear malpractice there or your lawyer you know uh your lawyer blows deadlines or doesn't assert a defense or do, does something that is completely uh negligent and then you still as, as elizabeth said you still have to prove your underlying case meaning had your lawyer done the right thing you would have won your case. So you had your case had merit and, and you would have had damages. Right. So these cases are really hard to prove for that reason. They are. And, and what I find uh, a lot of people are disgruntled with their lawyers is that they talk to a lawyer early on and the lawyer handles the case as they'll handle it, signs a retainer agreement and sits on it for almost the full time. Usually it's two years you have to file, and they sit on it for almost up to the full two years, and then a month or two before the time is up, they say, oh, we're not going to be able to handle your case, right. or oh, we have a conflict, and then you're left sort of high and dry trying to find an attorney in the 11th hour. And um, so, you know, what I would suggest in that situation is to file it pro se, and you can always file um whatever the action is on your own behalf there's forms online that you can file pro se and then that buys you some time the judge will usually give you 60 days or 90 days to find an attorney that makes that makes a lot of sense elizabeth caveney thank you so much for joining us i'm going to post uh, your contact information on the website have a good week everyone and stay tuned uh for all the good stuff up next